Hello. Hey, John. Hey there, Dan. How are you? Doing, doing good. A little crazy day. How's everything uh, up there in Seattle? Oh, I'm, uh, uh, pretty, I'm pretty up against the wall, actually. Uh, what's going on? Oh, um. You mean just time-wise or, or with some impending doom or something? Oh, oh, both things. Yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> as soon as I'm done talking to you, I'm going across town to master, which is to say the final, uh, the final step in in uh, mastering the Western State Hurricanes album. Oh, cool. And, um, and that's an involved process. Uh, and the, the engineer that's over there is like, yeah, I mean, whatever, take your time, but sure could use you over here. And I'm like, I'll be right there. That's an across-the-town drive. But more more importantly, I made an offer on a house a few days ago. Exciting. This well, isn't that yeah. one house that you wanted that the guy w- wasn't going to sell, huh? No, not that it's one. not that. Okay. Um, you know, I've been looking at houses very seriously in the last in the last several months since I sold my house and moved out of my, my old house. Right. Uh, but there's always something, you know. You and I talked off offline a little bit about the fact that I, when I first moved into the farm, I was um, I moved out to 100th Street, and that was pretty confusing to me, living all the way out at 100th. Right. And uh, then last year, my daughter's mother moved out to 200th. Right. Which was 100 more. And at that point, it was like, how do you live at 200th? You might as well be in Olympia, Washington or Vancouver, British Columbia at 200th. But I got used to being at 200th. You know, it's suburban, but it's still within the inner ring, the ring of a city. Mm-hmm. But then I, but then looking for a place to live, I, I find myself looking at 300th. And 300th, I just couldn't get my head around living at 300. Too, too far out there, too far removed. It's two extra more hundred than the, than the first time where I felt like I was too far away. And that's been a really tough process because at 300th, there are plenty of places that I could live that are not expensive, that are um, you know, relatively inexpensive, rather. And uh, But I just, you know, that, it, it, it went against... To expand the search all the way out there, you know, by the time you're living at 300th, you could also just go a different direction and live on a farm. <laughs> right. uh, but, I, but a house came available that was not anything like what I was looking for, but it had, but it was crazy. It had, it was intriguing. It had these features that, uh, uh that weren't on my list cause I didn't even know you could, you could have them. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in a moment, you know, I, I said, uh, let's make an offer on this house. And the owner, there was a crazy situation with the owners. There was all this drama. There was, uh, um, it was, you know, a few fretful days and then they accepted my offer. But in the meantime, the, the craziness of this house started mm. to sink in. And I mm. am not usually somebody that like says, make an offer. And then two days later is like, Whoa, I didn't mean that. You know, like I've, w- before I made an offer on this house, I went around through the neighborhood. I talked to about 10 different neighbors. I went and sat on the lawn of this house 
at 11:30 at night and watched the stars you know just trying to get a vibe from the land right sure of course um you know, there are people yeah. who don't do that. I'm, I, I will, I will walk a neighborhood at night. I will do all this stuff that you're talking about before I buy something like a house. And mm. I know a lot of people that they just, they look at it for, you know, 30 minutes in the daytime and well, this is the one for us. Yeah, and then, you I, know, then you realize everything that really happens in the neighborhood and at the house when you weren't there, I made that mistake the first time. I, I get down on myself about not being a, a good worker, you know, mm. or not doing my, um, not doing all the little, not ticking off all the boxes on lists and stuff. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty harsh on myself for not doing that stuff because I feel like that's it, in some version of our lives, that's the secret to success. Right. Um, but when I, when I discovered this house, before I even went to the open house, I had already walked all the streets of the neighborhood. Right. I'd, I'd walked from the house to the nearest public transit and back. I'd walked to the nearest public park and spent an afternoon sitting there talking to people. And when I walk through the neighborhood, anytime I see someone in their yard or working in their garage or getting out of a car... I stop and in the friendliest way I can, I say, Hey, how's it going? I'm thinking about moving into this neighborhood. What can you tell me? And so before I even had toured the house, I knew all about the homeowners association. I knew which, you know, I knew that the neighbors all knew each other. I knew that Bob thought that Cindy, uh, was, was, you know, very emotional because of what had happened with Tony. Um, <laughs> There was, uh, you know, I'd driven up some driveways and had people come out of the house in response to sensors going off and say, you know, meet me, meet me in the driveway and say, can I help you type of thing. Mm -hmm. But, and I tweeted about this the other day in response to this, the fact that I look like I do, that I'm a middle-aged white guy for, there's no other way to put it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, tall and strong and, and, um, groomed means that I can literally drive up a driveway where the sign says private property, no trespassing. Mm -hmm. I can drive up that driveway right up to the door of the house that's mm. in the forest, right. get out of the car, and, a, and, and the person that comes out of the door takes a look at me and greets me warmly. Like, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, I was just thinking about moving into the neighborhood. And they're like, oh, come on in, have a cup of coffee. So, you know, believe me, like, <laughs> that stuff is real. You know, almost anybody else, really almost anybody else couldn't, wouldn't try it because they knew they couldn't get away with it or they'd be Definitely. afraid. Yeah. You know, and I'm just not afraid. Like if they, even if they were like, I'm calling the cops, I'd be like, great. Cause you know, that's fine. Let's, I'd like to find out what they have to say too. It's really kind of ridiculous. Anyway, by the time I made an offer on this house, I knew everything. I knew everything about the neighborhood. I knew about the owner. I knew why they were selling. I knew what the neighbors thought. Um, the real estate agent was like, well, there's a, you know, there's a prior approval offer on the house and we have to wait for that to clear. And it's not sure, you know, they're not sure if that buyer is going to go through. And within 24 hours, I knew the name of who that pre-approved buyer was, had met him and had talked to him about his plans and discovered that he was not sincere about the house and that he was going to tell them that he 
you know, like I, I, so although I'm down on myself sometimes about not going down checklists, um, I realized when I made an offer on this house, like you couldn't work, you couldn't have done more work in the, in the five days prior to know what you were doing. Yeah. Uh, and I was very excited about it, but there are some real issues with the house. It needs a lot of, it needs a lot of work. And I was excited about that work. But like what, what kind of work? Cause I know you, you do a lot of home repair yeah. stuff yourself. And, and it's not crazy. It's not like replace a, um, you know, replace a furnace and like hot water heating system. You know, a lot of these houses in this neighborhood are actually heated um, by radiators. Mm. They, they look like they look like baseboard heaters. They look like electric baseboard heaters. But what they have is hot water pipes running through them. It was a it was a style of of um, of like home heating at the time. It's not forced air. That the it's these pipes. The, the furnace burns and it heats hot water and it sends hot water out around the house. And by the time it gets back to the furnace, it's cold and it does it again. It's like a, it's like a, a circulatory system. And those systems work great and they provide really nice, even heat if they still work or, you know, that there's an, there are an extra couple of things that can go wrong, including mm -hmm. like that there are pipes of hot water running all over your house. It's not that it needs that. Um, this house doesn't have a master bath. What happened was the, the, the man that built it, um, like started to build his dream house and ran out of money and then lived in it for 20 years, mm. having never finished never his master finished bath. It. Wow. Having never finished the, <laughs> the front of the, you know, like the windows never got trim put around them. The, um, and it's not just like decorative trim. It's like the windows right. aren't really sealed against the, uh, the, the world. And he, and the thing is, it's, uh, it doesn't look like a cabin. He, it's nice. Uh, but he, he didn't have the, he didn't have the finish money and never came up with it. So it would be moving into someone else's unfinished project and finishing it to my own taste, which is kind of a great opportunity. Um, but there, but this was this one man's dream house. And so there's, there are things that he did that can't be undone. Um, that, <laughs> like, that, like what, like what? Well, just the way he designed the house, you know, the, it's a thing when you're, when you're architecting a house and you've just got a blank piece of paper. There, there were, there's definitely been the style, the second half of the 20th century where people go, what's the big deal about right angles? Why is everybody so hung up, man, on like <laughs> squares and shit? Like, what if we just made it like not square? And in almost every instance, when you're building a house and you make something not square, it's, it's wrong in the long run. Right. Like even in the 1980s where it was like, okay, we're not going to just, we're not building triangles anymore. But like, what if every house had a big round bay window? I'm not talking about a, <laughs> like those old fashioned bay windows that are like, that are like square on the sides. I'm talking about like a round and we'll make it out of glass blocks. 
a round tower. It's like, no, nobody wants to be in that. You can't furnish it. There's no chair you can put in it. And so all you can do is stand in it. There's the only thing you can do with a room that's not square is stand in it and, and wish it was square. I don't know why. If I lived in a Gaudi house in Barcelona, maybe I would, uh, maybe I would feel differently, but you know, I feel like a lot of those Gaudi houses, the furniture is also built into the wall and you're not even, you're meant to live there, but only as a caretaker, you're only passing through this life. You know, the house, the house will stand and you are just a, you know, you're just a shadow. But like a normal American house where you want to put some couches and some chairs and some tables, it's like walls meet in corners. So this guy built this house and he thought, and he's like a, he's like a bachelor guy who's like, well, I mean, what am I going to need? What do I need more? An extra bedroom? Or a completely unfinished master bath and walk-in closet that's unusable for 20 years. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like the, he just, he built it in a way that, I mean, you could gut it to the studs and, and redo it, but, but that's insane, right? Anyway, all of this stuff, when I was looking at it, when I was learning about the neighborhood, when I was walking around kind of digging it, I was also trying to get... I was also trying to put myself into the story of this house. Like, can I live here? Is this a place that I can, that I, that whatever it is I'm looking for when I, when I live somewhere, can this be it? Because it's, it's going to be a change. It's not like living in my old farmhouse. It's a, it's a different, it's, it's utterly different. And that was the point, but what are the boundaries of you know, at what point do I, can I see a real problem and do I just charge ahead mm. because damn the torpedoes or, and, and how is that different from a thing where I can see a real problem and I just dive straight into it and then it's a real problem for the rest of my life. And one of the things that I've really noticed in selling my house, like when I bought my farm, I had just, I had a little bit of money that had come in from, um, from long winter songs getting used on TV, little, just a little pile. And I had never had any money up until that point. You know, like when I started with the long winters, I was, I was making $900 a month working at the newsstand mm-hmm. that when I joined Harvey danger and in the time that I was in Harvey danger, they paid me $15,000. Now I was in that band for a year. Right. They, they paid me $15,000 and they were feeding me and housing me the whole time. So it was $15,000 of free money. Kind of like, like a you know, that I, in a way, like you were like completely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I was really good at it, right? You would show up at the back of a venue and there'd be a cheese tray and a meat tray and, a, and some, you know, drinks in a thing. But then they also were going to buy you dinner. You'd get a buyout or you'd go to a restaurant and so, I, I, I mean, I swear to you, I'm, I'm a bag lady for sure, but like I'd put a bunch of meat in a little bag and some cheese in a bag because later <laughs> you take that stuff onto the bus, you lay it out, everybody uh-huh. comes home and they're like, I wish I had a little piece of cheese. And it's like, I got you, man. I got the cheese. So I didn't spend any money that year. And I, I never, I never thought I've never been so rich in my life, $15,000, you know, and that's the, 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 
the money I made the first long winners record with is that Harvey danger money. And it's the, you know, and we bought a van and started the band. Right. Right. Anyway. So it was, that was all happening in 2001 by 2006. The long winters had become a going operation. And in 2006, we got a couple of, it was that, it was that great era when they were using indie rock music and TV and got a couple of placements. And then I had a little pile of money. Like I'd never, like I'd never seen before. Now, if you, if you amateurize that amount of money over the course of 10 years of me pursuing a music career, I was getting paid about 11 cents an hour for all the work that I'd done, but it was money. It had happened. You know, there was some, it had arrived and I immediately put that money into a down payment on a house. I didn't even know why it just felt like, well, I can buy a house now. And so I should, I wanted to have my own place. I wanted to be able to close the doors and, and get away from other people and not have to not have somebody banging on the wall and telling me to be quiet and not, and more than that, even just not being, I I never wanted to imagine someone could hear me. I, hardly anybody ever complained because I, because I try to be quiet. I don't want to disturb other people, but just the idea of sitting in my room and strumming the guitar, the idea that someone could hear me mm-hmm. was bad enough. Right. They didn't have to pound. I just wanted to be able to have my own house and I made a down yeah. payment on a house. I bought the farm and it was the first place I ever made an offer on and I won it. And I moved in there and then basically just started paying rent and the economy crashed and I, and it, it felt like I had lost a bunch of money. Um, because the value of the house on paper went down yeah, significantly, but my mortgage payment was the same as I would be paying in rent if I lived in town. So I just lived out there and paid it. And I didn't think about the house being, um, worthless. Mm-hmm. It was just like, whatever, whatever I'm living here. I don't care what it's worth. Right. You've got it. You're staying done. Mm-hmm. But when I sold the house this year, the economy had recovered. Seattle's booming again. And so the, so I made a profit, right? I, I sold the house and there was more money than I had put into it. And I, and I realized then interest rates are down right now significantly from, you know, there's like three and a half points now, three and a quarter. Um, and the amount of money that I made from the sale of the house, I can now use as a down payment on another house. Right. With, which, uh, with the, uh, rather, which with the lower interest rates means that I can get a bigger house, more expensive house, and really my mortgage payment will be about the same. Mm. A little bit, a little bit more, Mm -hmm. a little, little bit more. But because I'm rolling the money from the sale of the old house into the new house, I am the loan that I'm getting is cheaper. Money is cheaper to rent or cheaper to, yeah, rent. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, it's like a brain teaser where you go, oh, it really is a case that 
if you have money, it's easy to make money. Mm-hmm. And the way that wealth accumulates is through property. I bought that farmhouse mostly out of a like a, a little windfall, a little bit of I had some money on hand that I didn't have obligation. And I bought a house and now I have more money and I'm going to buy another house and then and then over the course of 10 years that's going to appreciate. You know, it's this appreciation and I didn't it wasn't part of a plan. I did not start off having read a blog about how to become financially independent in your old age. But like I don't have a retirement. I don't have I I'm not able to tuck a bunch of money in a 401k. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden it's like, "Oh, I see real estate is this accidental way." in my case, where when I, 10 years from now, I'll be 60. And if I have, if, if my property has appreciated, I'm my, my, uh, my wealth is growing. Right. Where it's where I'm not earning more necessarily. I'm I'm making a living as a podcaster. (laughs) Um, but, but, this money is over here working for me in the economy. And that's astonishing. It's astonishing to feel it personally uh, because I have a lot of friends who are my age who do exactly the same thing that I do more or less, you know, came up in the arts community, been making art the whole time, periods of success, periods of struggle. Um, They're good dancers like I am. Uh, (laughs) You know, we're, we're peers and we're pals. <laughs> right. But in 2007, they didn't buy a house. And now in 2019, our financial situations are different from one another. And different in a way that uh, it would be very hard for them to catch up. Very yeah. hard to start catching up. And the decision at the time, you know, I kind of got people scoffed at me like, Oh, you're buying a house out in where? Like, not, that's not for me, man. I'm going to live in my cool apartment downtown and keep on doing my thing. You know, sure. You got, you know, go out and live in the sticks if you want. And I felt the isolation. Yeah. But, but particularly for that to have happened sort of by accident. And for most of the time I lived in my house, I assumed it was worth less than I paid for it. So I was stunned when someone told me like, no, you could sell that house for more than you paid for it. I was like, what really? I mean, I remember when millennium girlfriend was moving to Seattle and she was like, you got to sell your house. I'm not, I can't live in your house. We're going to have to buy a house together. What was her, what didn't she like about it? Oh, well, she loved it. <clears throat> she loved my house. And for a year and a half, she came up and was like, this house, it's so amazing. You know, build a, build a life here together. And then like within a week of having actually moved to Seattle, she said, you know, most, uh, most psychologists say that you should never move into someone else's house. You sh- you should always buy a house together because the, the old house has too many memories. And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, you used to say you loved it here. She's like, yeah, but you know, I don't want to just live in a place where like you cleared a drawer for me. I'm like, well, I guess I see that. And then within a day, 
we were on North Queen Anne looking at like white colonial houses in a neighborhood where every other car on the street is an, an Audi A7. And I was like, well, how am I, where am I, how did I get here? I don't want to live up here. This is terrible. But she, you know, anyway, she only lasted a couple of weeks after she moved to really? Seattle. Really? Uh, and, and, but part of it was, she was like, you got to sell your house. And I was thinking, I mean, I'll sell my house, but the money that I make from it will not be enough. I will not be able to contribute half of the money to purchasing this grand home that you're, that you think we're going to live in. But, you know, she was a tech lawyer and, and had more money than I did. So, so it, it was a really sketchy proposition for me then, because it was like, you're going to sell your house, put all your money into this house where you will be the junior partner. Right. I was like, ah, I don't know. Anyway, so this house that I made an offer on, they accepted the offer and it was, it was all fraught with emotion because the, the man who built the house died and had no next of kin other than his mother, who was very emotional about having lost her son. And she's in her nineties and the house to her was in some ways a personification of him or, uh, or rather he, he was, you know, he built it. So the house was kind of what she had left of him and she's in her nineties and she's a little bit, you know, she's also like keeping big bags of rice because that was the kind of rice that he liked. You know, yeah, she's not, yeah. she's not making all the greatest decisions, but she's got some, capable helpers in the form of other people in this neighborhood. These people that I've talked to on the street, they're all like, we're helping her. Her lawyer is there. Her, you know, this guy has power of attorney. This guy over here is acting as her agent. And we're all just trying to help her because she can't live here anymore. It's too big or it's too, you know, ramshackle. And she doesn't want to sell it, but, you know, but we're really trying to get her to see that this is the time, you know, and I, this is all stuff you shouldn't know about a house you're buying. It's just that I'm wandering the streets at night. So they finally convince her to sell it and they accept my offer. And now I'm in this situation where these, these voices have started to come in to my to to my decision making process that are saying you just if you go through with this transaction you have just bought a you've bought an enormous project you're not going to just move in here and put your bags down and start start a happy new life you're basically moving into someone else's unfinished dream and now you're the guy who's going to either find the money and the time and the patience to finish this bathroom, or you're the one living in a house with no bathroom. And, you know, you've got to fix these windows. You've got to pave that driveway. You've got to build a deck and a patio and a, and a path, you know, like there's a, in the backyard, it's on a steep slope and you can't, 
it's like a death trap. Anybody that steps out of the back uh, windows, if they take 10 more steps, they could tumble, they could tumble into a ravine. You know, there's not, there hasn't been any, nothing's, nothing's done. It's just a crazy environment. Yeah. And so these, so I'm saying to myself, like, what did you just do to yourself? Like, this is not necessarily what we set out to do. Like I had a list of the 10 things I wanted in a home that I've been using to look for a house for a year and a half. And none of these things were on that list. The list does not say a prod a complete, you know, like pile of sticks that needs to be reworked by an architect and, and my imagination and, and, uh, you know, the list was said the opposite. I would like a, a house with a new kind of discipline and a new, <laughs> you know, something that's that has um, that has style and I can I can live in without my head being filled with the howling sounds of An unfinished of projects, right? Unfinished projects. But now, because I've been wandering this neighborhood and know this story. Now I also have what I feel is the, <clears throat> the burden of this 95 year old woman who's lost her son mm -hmm. and who had to be convinced to sell this house and to say now, you know, within the real estate business, there's all these like, you have three days to do this. And then after that, you have six days to do that. And in, if there's a inspection, you have 11 days to this and that and earnest money. And, you know, there's all these different levels where at any, <clears throat> at any point along the way, the buyer can say, well, we looked at it and we realized that the hot water heater is made out of glass and, um, there were a lot of things that, you know, weren't revealed and we're canceling the sale. Like I could cancel this sale, yeah, and and not and not have any repercussions, right? Because for people who haven't bought a house, and I'm not sure if it's the laws are the same in Seattle because I think they're different state to state, but in most places, it's pretty consistently. And I'm I've, I'm trying to remember how many houses I've actually owned four or five. Basically, you you make your offer, and then the offer is usually said to be contingent upon, like you're talking about now. Um, a, an inspection that you're satisfied with or review of other things. We actually canceled a homeowner deal when we found a whole bunch of stuff that was wrong with the house. We just said, look, there, there's too much. There's too much that's wrong. And so that's it. It, it, it shuts the deal down, you know? Right. And, and for people who haven't bought a house, I'm sure this, this sounds logical, but you know, you'd be surprised how much stuff isn't logical when it comes to buying houses. But yeah, there's a lot of, and depending on what the clause is, we even had one, one time where, um, we read the homeowners association documents and they were very restrictive and we didn't like it. So we canceled the deal. Like there's a lot of reasons that you could get out of it if you wanted to typically, yeah. they can always find it. <clears throat> right. They can find a way. <clears throat> well, and there are plenty of things about this house, you know, uh, that you don't even have to look, I mean, all I have to do is walk into the bathroom and go, okay, well, it's, it says on the listing that it's a two bedroom or two bathroom home, but it's not, there's only one. And the bath, the bathroom that is being the, the bathroom that does work, um, is kind of, it, it looks like it was 
the bathroom in a home where construction had been happening for 20 years. Like the bathroom is trashed. It's, it, it's a bathroom. It works, but so, so for the last 24 hours, I have been really pulling my hair out for a lot of different reasons. I don't like to enter into a contract with someone and then look for a reason to get out of it. Like if I'd gone into the house and found that it was full of snakes, I would have no remorse about like, well, it's, you know, this isn't what you represented it as. But the house is what, you know, the house is still the house I knew it was when I bought it. I'm just realizing that maybe I made a, maybe I made a blunder. And it's not a blunder in that the house isn't worth the money or that the house isn't intriguing and the house isn't excellent and that I couldn't turn the house into a wonderful place. It is that the blunder is that I was seeking in buying this house to not do that. Right. That, which is the thing that I do in everything, which is, oh, this unfinished broken thing, like, like, let me take that home. Like, I'll buy that for $5 and bring it home and take it apart and maybe I'll turn it into a windmill. Or maybe it's, maybe this is the great, the missing album or, you know, like I, my, the unfinishedness and plotlessness of my life why would I do this to myself again, even after months of meticulous work to avoid this happening? But I feel bad about, about reneging on a deal based on that realization. And I think probably most people would say people renege on deals all the time. Don't, don't buy a house that's going to torment you just based on some feeling of obligation you have to a, to a 95 year old woman you've never met. It's not your fault her son died. She doesn't, you know, she, the thing is that she doesn't have a next of kin either. So she's selling this house and who knows where she doesn't need money. She's got a, she's got other properties apparently according to her people. She should go live in a home and eat jello and you know, like it's, it, no child should ever die before their parent. Yeah. But if you live to be 95, you're kind of taking a risk. Like he, he, he died and I, I think tragically, but he was probably in his late seventies. But I, but I, but I, but this is exactly what I do. Now I have the responsibility for her emotions. I'm worried that my real estate agent isn't going to respect me. I'm worried that my family is, um, is starting to roll their eyes at me. Mm-hmm. And there's still a big part of me that does want to move into this crazy house and start working on the unfinished bathroom and trying to devise a way so that uh, people can walk out on the back porch and not tumble to their deaths. Yeah. And so it, this is the opposite of, I mean, and, and the whole buying and selling of houses is, is a nightmare emotionally, unless Mm -hmm. everything goes right, which it, which it never does. It can't possibly. So, and I'm living in the spare bedroom, my daughter's mother's house. So there's a whole other voice that's just like, just buy a house so that you can get out of here. And, And not that living here is bad. It's great. But I'm living out of a 
out of a suitcase, not even a suitcase. I'm living out of a duffel bag. <sighs> Frustrating. I mean, buying a house is such a big thing because it's really, it's a long commitment. It's a long time you're going to be there, you know? And yeah, it really has to be just right. It's not like an apartment where you can get a year lease and if it's not right, eh, I moved out. Dealt with it for a year and I'm out of there. Everything's on you. Everything's on you to do. You want to fix something? That's you doing it. Yeah. That's you that has to go and get the supplies and figure out how to do it. Time that you have to well, spend on it, you know? The thing is, I like that. It's, it's, what I don't want is to, I am, I get haunted, right? The, the, the thing about the farmhouse is it didn't have a basement. It wasn't built with one. Well, that was a decision that was made in 1907. And yet the lack of a basement in that house became a kind of ghoul that wandered the house rattling its chains in the middle of the night because I would sit there and I would say, if I had a basement, I would be down there right now sorting through these old cufflinks. Mm -hmm. But as it is, there isn't a basement, so I have to sort these cufflinks here on the dining room table. Well, the problem with me is that I will not finish this cufflink sorting project today. I'm halfway into it, and I know I'm not going to get it done today. So that means that this sorting of the cufflinks project is going to be here on the dining room table for an indefinite amount of period. Now, if or an indefinite period. Now, if I had a basement, this could be down in the basement. No one, and the dining room table would remain clean. <laughs> we would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. There are so many things that you can do with Squarespace. You can turn your cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can blog, you can publish any kind of content you want. You can sell products and services of all kinds. And that's something, you know, they don't talk about that enough, but like they're a full on e-commerce website if you want them to be, or they're a full gallery for your photographs if you want them to be, or they're a blog, or you can host your music there. If you're a band, you can have your menu there. If you're a restaurant, you can have information about the app that you're working on. If you're an app developer, literally anything that you want to do. And what's beautiful about Squarespace is it lets you create a website so easily, so quickly. And without having to know HTML or CSS, you just go in there, you start twiddling the dials, you turn in the knobs, and all of a sudden you've customized one of their beautiful templates and made it your own in every possible way. This is not some site that's churning out cookie cutter websites. You customize this thing, you make it yours, and it won't look like any other site out there. And it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be secure. It's going to have, you know, you don't have to worry about patching things or upgrading. You don't have to worry about security. They handle everything. And you can even register a domain and buy a domain right there on Squarespace. They've got over 200 domain name extensions for you to choose from. And they even have analytics that help you grow. I mean, name something you want that has to do with the website. They've got it. They're doing it and they're making it easy. And they're encouraging you to make it yourself do this on your own. You don't need help. You don't need to hire somebody. And if you do need help, they got 24 seven customer support ready to help out. So go over to squarespace.com slash roadwork for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code roadwork one word, and you'll save 10% off your purchase, uh, first purchase of a website or a domain. 
One more time, squarespace.com slash roadwork. Promo code roadwork to save 10% off a first purchase of a website or domain. It's a good deal and they'll take good care of you. Go check it out. Thanks very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. And so (laughs) I said that to myself so many times over the 11 years I lived in that house that after a while, the basement of that farmhouse existed in my mind. I knew exactly what it looked like, the basement that should have been there. And so the fact that it wasn't there became a kind of phantom limb syndrome. It felt like I had had a basement that was taken away and I could still feel it. I just couldn't get there. I mean, I knew where the door to the basement would be in that house. I knew what it would look like. I knew how I had it arranged, where the guitars were. I knew what the lock on the door was going to be. It didn't exist. It was never going to exist. That house will never have a basement. Mm -hmm. And that's a, I guess, I I don't even know if that's a peculiar kind of insanity. I wonder (laughs) whether people do this all the time about things. But I, I felt so acutely that I needed a basement and I, and I, and it was gradual over time when I moved into the house, I didn't realize I needed a basement. So when I started looking for houses, one of the first three things on the list was must have a basement and preferably a basement that included some unfinished space. Mm-hmm. Like it's nice if the basement has a little a bedroom down there or a little TV room or something, but I would like a basement that has unfinished space so that I right. can have a work room, you know, a place to go sort cufflinks sitting on a stool in the middle of the night where I'm not in anybody's way. Nobody can hear me and I can leave it and go out, close the door. And my house isn't an insane asylum, right? It's just that this room is an insane asylum. And I have rejected great houses in my house search because there wasn't a basement or because the basement was, um, was whatever turned into a spa or something. I mean, not a spa, (laughs) but you know, like a basement that I couldn't use for this purpose. Right. Well, this house, this house that I just made an offer on doesn't even have a basement at all. There's not even Mm. like the hot water heater is in the garage. You're not, doing a very good job of selling me on this house. Well, what's great about the house is that it does have considerable drama of a kind in that drama kind of It's kind of like being inside of a barn. There's a giant, it's basically just a giant room. Okay. uh, With tall ceilings. This is you selling me on the house right now. Yeah. And when you're in the room, you can look across and see to the other side of the house. Okay. When you're in the unfinished bathtub uh, and, and imagining that it will one day be a bathtub, you can mm-hmm. look through the bathroom, the open bathroom door through 
the house to the outside. Like it's a very big open space, which when I was, when I was young in my twenties, I lived in a, a warehouse loft in Seattle on 11th Avenue between Pike and Pine, which then was kind of like, yeah, it was Capitol Hill, but not any part that anybody would want to go to. It was just kind of a no, no man's land. And now it's like the center of the, of the zone. I remember the right. guy that, that bought the warehouse that I had my apartment in and I built that apartment. I mean, it was just, it had like, it was a warehouse two days before I moved in and we put electricity in it. We put walls in it. The guy that bought it, he, he bought the building on a hundred year lease. So he leased it for a hundred years <laughs> for a million dollars to cover all his bases. Yeah. $1 million. And I thought both things were crazy. Why would you lease a building right. for a hundred years? Like how does someone inherit that? I guess they inherit the lease. It, it didn't, it didn't register with me that the guy that was doing this was already 40 in 50 years. He would be 90. Yeah. He could hand this down to a, a a benefactor or I'm sorry, a, uh, beneficiary who was 40 years old at the time of his death, who would live to be 90 also. And mm -hmm. the lease would still be, you know, like a hundred years is a long time. But when I was 26, I was like a hundred years. Well, hell a hundred years from now, I'll still be living here. But also the fact that he paid a million dollars for this place. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, sprawling warehouse with probably six businesses in it and 25 enormous loft apartments in it. He probably makes a million dollars a month in rent mm, now. Wow. But this warehouse loft was, was, was a dream style of living for me when I was younger because it just seemed so urban. And so, uh, you could just, you could make the space, whatever you wanted. It was completely raw space. And so if you wanted to create a room over here, you would just arrange the furniture and now you had a new room almost, you know, you find some doors in an alley and, and bolt them together and make a, an, an intriguing loft wall out of weathered old doors. And none of us had any money. You know, I was making at that point, probably $700 a month. But we lived in this place and the bathroom was down the hall and, and, uh, we had some walls made out of, I'm seriously windows that I found in a dumpster that I borrowed some guy's shopping cart and went and filled up this cart with windows, rolled them home, unloaded them, took the cart back to the dumpster, filled it up with windows, came back. And these are, you know, hundred, hundred year old windows. And then we built a little frame and built a room out of them that you could hang curtains in and it was, you know, it was like a, it was my bedroom, but it was, it was, I just thought that stuff was great. I was just having so much fun at the time. I didn't think I was having fun at the time. I thought I was miserable because whatever, I'm miserable, a sad sack. But, but when I looked at this house that I made an offer on, 
it reminded me of that <clears throat> raw, just raw space that could be made into anything. Except now I have 20 more years worth of ideas. Mm. But this is a raw space that's not in Pioneer Square or Capitol Hill in Seattle. It's it's in the suburbs. It's you know, it's on a little on a little plot of land. Um, it has neighbors around it who are, who look out for one another, you know, who uh, the guy next door has an airstream in his driveway and it's a nice one. It's like polished. Um, so that's not everybody's cup of tea, right? It's a, and the house is because it was built by this, this one guy, it really feels like a bachelor house, right? It does not have any gentility at all. It's very much like a guy lived here and now he sold it to another guy. Right. Um, and the guy that built it didn't have a daughter. I have a daughter, but she's grown up very resilient to aesthetic change. So she walked around and she was like, well, here's my room. First thing I'm going to do is paint it pink and put a flower on the door. How do you like them apples? <laughs> uh -huh. I was like, well, yeah, all right. So Dan, all of this, the reason that I'm, uh, the reason that it's so present is that this is, this, I am right in the center of this. When I get off the phone with you, I will, um, I will be thrust into a real moment of decision. What yeah. am I going to do? If I call my agent and say, I'm going to pull out of this deal. Will I, will I miss this house? Will I regret it? Will I carry the burden of, of picturing this little old lady sobbing in the arms of her lawyer at having to go through this whole nightmare of putting the house for sale again? I mean, even though they, they shouldn't have marked it as pending as fast as they did. They yeah. should have just like waited a day. Um, and you know, I don't know. And, and also then am I throwing myself back into the, in, in doing so, I'm just like back to Mr. Guy who, who looks at, at houses all day, which becomes its own form of pornography. You know, people get addicted to the kind of looky-loo covetousness of real estate listings and open houses. Right. Until... They're doing it for fun. It's, you know, they're all those television shows. They're just like house fix it uppers. It becomes a, uh, it becomes a sexy, like a, almost a sex substitute. Oh, houses. And I don't want, <clears throat> I'm not looking for houses because I, I, I need a sex, a sex substitute. Like I, I need a place to live. And as I mentioned earlier, Buying a house is the only method I have of accumulating wealth so that when I become, an, uh, when I'm 80, I'm not destitute. And so I don't want to just take the money that I sold my house for and go live in an apartment for a year. You know, I don't want to buy a cool car. I don't want to travel the world, like all those things that, um, 
that it seems like, well, why not just go travel, go to Tahiti for a year? It's like, no, because if I, if I take this money that I made and don't reinvest it, then I'm, um, then I'm like utterly failing to play the capitalism game right. correctly. And for someone with no retirement and, um, who pays for his own insurance and, you know, my royalty payments from my music now are down in the single digits. I mean, not, not single digits, like $1, but not, not, not enough to live on. Right. <laughs> um, like where, where's, where's my money going to come from? Well, we don't know anything about podcasting. Is it, is podcasting going to be a thing in 10 years? I think it may still, I think it may be, it may be the number one form of media in 10 years mm -hmm. or everybody will have moved on to something else. I thought that rock and roll would always be a thing, but I mean, I guess it bumbles along, but like, think of all the people who thought that the programs would always be coded in basic or I don't know. There's gotta be a million examples in computer maths of people that didn't keep up and they ended up being experts in something in, in something that nobody uses anymore. And I don't, you know, I can't say like, well, I found podcasting and so I'll just keep podcasting until the day I die. I mean, unless I die in the next five years, mm. which hopefully I don't do. Let's nah. knock on some. You're not going to do that. Anyway, I got an interesting package today. Oh yeah, tell me all about that package. Well, there was there was a package in the mail. Uh, it was from Dan Benjamin. Mm. I opened it up. I opened it and read it. It said I was a sucker. <laughs> and uh, inside, uh, there's a watch. It's a very intriguing watch. It's, um, the name, if you look at it, it looks like it's all in Latin letters. It looks like it says Paqueta. Right. But then when you look down at the, you know, down at the bottom there where it would say like Swiss made or whatever, yeah. uh, the letters are Cyrillic and it presumably says something like, I mean, uh, one, it's Cyrillic and one of the words is Russia. Right. So it says, probably says made in Russia, which means that it isn't Pateka or Paketa because those are then Cyrillic letters that just look like. Yeah. I think um, it's pronounced Latin. with an R. Yeah. Rocketa. Yeah. Like rocket. Right. I think that's what Rocketa. it means. Yeah. Anyway, it's not a normal watch because rather than, um, than have a dial that goes from one to 12, it has a dial that goes from one to 23. I'm sorry, 24. It's a 24-hour watch. A 24-hour watch right. sent to me by America's sweetheart, Dan Benjamin. <laughs> you got to like the captive bezel, though, the rotating captive bezel. Have you rotated that yet? I'm just, I'm just learning about it now. So the two, there's two, it, two um, uh, dials, as you would say, on oh, the side. Oh, I'm rotating it. Believe me. Yeah. 
Well, here, here are a couple of things I don't understand. This is a mechanical watch. Does, yes. Is it self-winding? No, you, you must wind it. Okay, you wind it. Yeah, using and then the this, crown, the big crown. Using the crown. And then the second thing, and you just wind it normally, but do you have to pull it out? Oh, no, you just wind it. Yeah, just and wind it. And then the second... The second thing is, I understand how a 24-hour watch would work in terms of hours, mm-hmm. but in terms of minutes, if you, um, are there 60 minutes on the face of the watch or are there 120 minutes? Well, you're looking at it, so I'm not totally sure, but I think that, I think that it has uh, just 60 So if it has only 60. I'm looking to see if I can look at a picture of it. I might have, I'm looking through the. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's a lot of little tick marks out there. There it is. Yeah, you don't want to overwind it here. It'll stop. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to put too much pressure on it, but it'll, it'll stop. Okay, so 12, it's now 12.07 my time. But put, I, I can I can put the little hand on the twelve, but I'm not sure whether I put the big hand on what seven minutes would look like, uh-huh. or whether I put it whether I have to count seven minutes by some other method. No, you just do it the regular way. Do it just the way that you would expect it to work on a traditional watch, and it'll it'll do its thing. Okay, so now uh, the watch is. <clears throat> Is set to twelve oh seven, but it looks like it says <laughs> that it's six oh seven because okay. twelve is at right. the bottom. Yeah, and the watch is in beautiful condition, absolutely uh-huh. stunning. And this is made for what submariners or something? Who needs a twenty four hour watch? I think that besides I, you and me, I, yeah, I don't really know what. The story is on on these, but I know that the reason that that has the captive bezel that you can rotate is so that the, apparently these are organized with shifts, right? So you've got like your two day shifts and then you've got your, then the red section is for, I'm guessing the night shift or something like that. So it's a military. It's either military or like in a, use in a factory. I had always imagined it was a factory kind of a thing, but I don't. Your guess is as good as mine. They're Soviet. Yes. These. Yeah, I think so. It's like if you if you uh, if you live in Antarctica, Antarctica. I, it is such a beautiful thing. It's such a like a a piece of industrial beauty. Uh, I have it on now, and what's nice is that you know I wear my watch. I put a new strap on, the, on it. I put the the biggest oh, one that I great. had because I knew the you know, the size of your Hulk wrists would be bigger than mine. So I, I went as big as I could. Yeah. It barely fits. I can get it it into into the first, (laughs) the first little, uh, hole, but it, but it fits nicely. I had to get you a new strap. So yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's very comfortable, Good, but I wear my watch on the inside of my left wrist. Okay. Of course. Of course you do. Uh, I learned that from my dad. Which is, and he, uh, he wear, wore his watch there because as a pilot. Yeah. You're going to whack it on the. Well, no, he could check the time without taking his hand off the, off the yoke. Right. Of the air, aircraft. 
The problem is that I, I have an Apple Watch, and the Apple Watch does not allow you to wear it on the inside wrist. The watch doesn't, the sensors don't pick up right. properly. Right. And also when you turn your wrist to look at it, it turns off because it, because it's internal gyros think it's in some different orientation. But now I have a 24 hour watch and every time I look at it, I'm going to, until I learn how to use it, I'm going to go, okay, now what time is it? 14 o'clock? Right, right, right. But I, I, I have my, um, I have my computer set to military time too. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm accustomed, I guess, at least to doing that math. It's a beautiful gift. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome. I hope you enjoy it, even if it's more of a uh, a style thing than it is a functional thing for you. I thought of you when I, you know, I had, I've had this watch for a number of years. Um, it was, uh, I, I have some of the history. The guy that I got it from, I forget what country he was in. I think it was Hungary or some somewhere... Russian adjacent and uh, and he was in some small town and had found it in some small little watch vintage type store and picked it up and um, and and I once I got it I, I did some work done on it and uh, Paul you know polished the uh, it has a, an, a lovely vintage acrylic uh just, I mean, everything about it is so nice. I'm trying to visualize it. And, uh, and I just really enjoyed having it, but I found that I wasn't wearing it a lot. And every, even since the first day I got it, I thought this is something John would like. So I just figured, you know, if there was a chance that you'll wear it a few times a year, that'll be more than I'm wearing it. And I hate the idea of a watch. that doesn't get worn. It just bothers me. So mm -hmm. hopefully you'll enjoy it. Little conversation piece. I will wear it. I am wearing it. <clears throat> and, you know, all, all of all of the decisions I'm trying to make right now are based largely in matters of style. So this is exactly the kind of the kind of style uh, that I want to bring to the world and a, a semi unreadable vintage watch <laughs> given to me as a gift by a dear friend <laughs> across the country. All right. Um, and. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make basically all my decisions by consulting the watch. Now. Right, of course. I'm gonna, say, of course. I'm gonna say Soviet watch. What should I do in this instance? And the watch will through its through its semi rotating bezel or whatever will will give me the give me the key. I'll just rotate the bezel. That's what I'll do. What That's should, all you know how to do. Ma magic bezel where you stop. Anyway, I hope uh, I hope that I haven't um, given you too too much anxiety talking about all of my. Well, I mean, it's it uh, dumb problems. I, I'm I am a little curious to know what you're going to do. It doesn't really sound like you're committed either way right now. It sounds like you're in a in a state of limbo. It's the. <clears throat> It's kind of the worst thing because the worst part of it, because a lot of people want to employ what I think of as semi, semi woo woo problem solving techniques, like put both 
options in a bag and set it on fire. Whichever <laughs> one you jump to save is the one you always <laughs> right, wanted. Right, right, right. Mean, what my, you should do is, you know. Yeah, uh, I'll just hear, let me throw this out there. I, I'm not one to give advice, unsolicited advice, or even regular advice. But, mm-hmm. you know, I just feel like it's a, it's a lot of work. And I know, knowing myself, I'm good doing a project and saying, okay, I've got a project and I go do this thing. And I plan for it. I study it, feel comfortable about it. Say, all right, I'm going to go do this project. However, I don't like to have to do projects like that. I'm not talking about in my day job or work or whatever. I'm talking about in my home, the place that is supposed to be my sanctuary, the place that is, you know, your, your home base from which, from which life springs, right? The idea of like, well, there's 50 things that I've got to do here. Some of them are small, but some of them are kind of major. I feel like in a situation like that, this should be uh, your, your second home, your project home, right? Maybe you have a home base already and you get this one and like, well, I'm going to go over there and work, you know, on this weekend, we're refinishing the deck. That's what this weekend's project is, or we'll do half of it. And you do that. And then like the next week you're like, okay, and now we're redoing the bathrooms and that might take a few weeks of, you know, evenings, weekends, whatever. And you're doing that and well, there's update the electrical thing over here. We got to finish this tub over here and they're all projects. And it's like, if you don't get to it, no big deal. You get to it next week. There's no real rush. It's your hobby. It's the thing you enjoy doing. And then after a few years of work, you're like, wow, we did it. The country home is done. We can finally go stay there. And then you, you furnish it and you go stay there. To me, that's the only way that I could approach something like this. I don't want to, and I've done it. I've done it where I've been in a house that was like a project house. It was a 1940s bungalow style home that had, it had been cosmetically redone enough to sell it. But the guy that was flipping these, he would kind of come in, he'd buy like three or four houses on a street. He'd kind of cosmetically redo them so that there was a sense of Hey, look, maybe a new little neighborhood is springing up here. This street is, is really improving. We should buy a house here on this street, which we did. And all of us who had these little homes all had problems with them because everything that they had done was just to make it look good. There was tons of problems. We wound up having to redo cabinetry. We wound up having to redo plumbing we, and electrical. And there was so much that we had to do. And refinishing the deck and porch and other things. But it was like... When you're living in that, it's one thing to have a project. You've got to go do it. It's another to have like a project that's happening while you're living in it and trying to conduct your life around it and the other things. And, and you, although you go out quite a bit and you, 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 you go on trips, you see concerts every single day, you're doing all this kind of cool stuff. You also more or less do work from home, right? Like, your home is your home base, not just for where you sleep and where you do your laundry and prepare some of your meals, but you work there. You spend a lot of time there. You know, you're not leaving at, at eight in the morning and getting back at seven at night or six at night. 
having left and, and come back and say, oh, right, I got to go do this. Like it's surrounding you. And if you're anything like me, that causes both a feeling of frustration and also a feeling of, for me anyway, like you're saying, the anxiety of like, Ugh, this thing isn't done. This thing just isn't done. I'm the only one that can do this. And it's not a, as much of a money thing sometimes as it is a time thing. Because you know that like finishing that tub or whatever, you're not going to, that's not a 30 minute thing. That's not folding laundry. That's days. Um, anyway, so that's just, that's my own concern about you picking up a big project like that because it's going to yeah. be a project that's going to be ongoing. You know, if you were the kind of guy who you were just f- trying to find things to work on, you were trying to find things to do that you just, you know, and I, I had, my uncle was like this. You know, if he had a spare minute, he would be like inventing something or building something or repairing something or redoing it. Like he, the, they never, never had anyone out to their house to repair anything, fix anything, upgrade anything. He did it all himself because he could. And he believed that paying someone else to do something that he could do was blasphemous. Even if he didn't, even if it was well outside, he was an electrical engineer, even if it was well outside of his wheelhouse of stuff that he was comfortable doing. He, for example, he retiled the entire downstairs himself. And it took weeks for him to do this because he was, he would come home from work and then he would do it and he would do it all weekend long. And it turned out fine. It looked fine. But you know, I could, I could see going and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to go to hit all the tile shops until I find a really good deal on the tile that I want. And I'm going to transport it to my house myself in the truck. And I'm going to do this and the other thing. But when it comes to actually like laying the tile, that kind of work really sucks. It really sucks. It's hard work. You're on your hands and knees with your back hurting. You've got to get, you've got to get a saw where you're sawing the tile and measuring it perfectly. And it's just not fun. And that's something way best left to the pros, even though could you do it? Yes. Most people could do it. Um, but it really is one of those things that is best left to the pros. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff you're going to encounter that might even just surprise you where you're like, oh, well, I pulled this plank of wood up and underneath it was this other problem that I had to then fix. And, and you're, you know, I don't know. I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm worried for you. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. It might be the perfect house for you, but maybe the status of the house isn't what, what you need. Yeah. Yeah. All of this is, all this is true and it's all, uh, it's all what I have to do right now. After mm-hmm. I get off the phone with you and then drive across town and master the Western State Hurricanes album, then I have to come home. I actually have to go to the pharmacy because I'm out of medication. But then I have to come home and decide, make make this decision. And I don't. I it all feels like. I mean, one of the one of the things that would be nice about real estate is if you. If when you found a place that interested you, you could stop time for five days. Yeah, right. And not be instantly in a competitive war with all the other buyers in the world who also, you know, are being manipulated by 
real estate agents who who live according to a like a medieval guild of like arcane rules and <laughs> this, this strange like life and death real estate agent world. But I don't have I don't have uh, I do you know it's it's also hard because it's uh, because I am under a lot of pressure but it's also not an ex- extremely sympathetic position to be in like I don't know which house to buy there are a lot of people who are friends of mine who who wish they had this problem but so often in the world today we feel like if our problem doesn't rank in the top tier of global problems that we don't have a right to feel bad and so you hear people all the time say like, I know it's a first world problem, but blank, 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 blank. And it's like, no, not really. It's actually your problem. It's a problem that you're having and you should just be able to have problems and not have to apologize for global inequality uh, or apologize for the fact that, you know, not everybody has the same problems. Um, and this is a real problem for me. But I'm, But I also am conscious of the fact that it's – it's hard for me to know I even among my closest friends no one's really interested in hearing about it it's not a thing where you call up and say oh i'm having trouble with this girl and people go oh let me tell you man it's like <laughs> i'm having trouble knowing how knowing about this real estate transaction and i've only got like four friends that would even be vaguely interested and they're not going to they're going to end up saying something like you do, which is, which is like, well, it could be the house for you. And I hope if it is, you get it. But if it's not the house for you and you don't, it isn't the right one. I hope you don't get it. But anyway, you know, like what else can you say? Right. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not, uh, um, but it's with internally it's agonizing because I'm making a decision about not just where I'm going to live, but how I'm going to yeah, live. Right, the, sure. what, where my life is going to take place, which is a significant decision. And, um, and according to criteria that I'm just inventing, right. I could live in this house just fine. I could, frankly, I could live here in the guest room of the house where I'm living right now. I could live here for 15 years and everything would be fine. Everything would be fine. So not just fine. I would, if I lived here in the guest room, I'd be for all intents and purposes in the lap of luxury. <laughs> 